0: This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information.
1: Astronomy Cast, episode 221 from Monday, February 21st, 2011. Geomorphology. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Cain. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi Pamela, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser?
1: Good, finally warming up a little. So Good. Yeah. You know, get ready to come out of the Canadian deep freeze for another summer. (laughs) So, all right. Well, when we look around our planet, we see a huge variety of landforms, mountains, valleys, plateaus, and more. Continents rise and fall over the eons, providing geologists with a history of the planet's evolution. The study of these changes is known as geomorphology, and the lessons we learn here on Earth apply to the other planets in the solar system. Well, I think, you know, as always, our specific interest is that we're going to really want to talk about how how this all applies to the solar system because there's these lessons that go back and forth but things we learn in the solar system apply back to earth and with earth out to the solar system and it sets our imagination for extrasolar planets but but let's kind of go back to the basics and and really understand like what is geomorphology
0: It's basically a really long, fun-to-say word that means the surface of a planet isn't flat due to a variety of processes, ranging from tectonic processes, this is the plates that make up the surface of a planet moving around, to aeolian processes, things getting blown about by the wind, and fluvial processes, which basically means stuff that's been affected by liquids like water. You also get imbrium processes, which is volcanism. So all of these different things, basically earth, wind, and fire, if you consider volcanism fire, they have an effect on the shape of the surface of the planet. We don't have perfect spheres. And where we deviate from that perfect sphere, that's geomorphology.
1: And so we're talking about when we look at a mountain, or we look at an ocean, or we look at you know, as I said, a plateau or a valley or things like that, each one of those had a history, you know, that, that happened over time and there are processes going on. So so you, you sort of quickly mentioned a bunch of the processes. Can you give us some concrete examples maybe?
0: Mountains are perhaps as uh, concrete an example as you can get, especially if they're made of granite, just to be punny. So when you see a mountain, those mountains are typically formed by two different processes. You either have a volcanic mountain, which means that there was a hole in the Earth's crust and up out of the hole rose magma that eventually broke through the surface and built up and built up and built up and built up, up, forming that large hill mountain, that deviation from a sphere that you see on the horizon. Now, most mountains, however, things like the Alps, the Rockies, these are formed where two plates, two pieces of the surface of the Earth have collided together and have in the collision folded up, sort of like when two cars have the misfortune of running into each other, their hoods crinkle up. Well, this is the exact same thing as that crinkled hood. It's just a crinkled plate on the surface of the planet Earth.
1: And... And some of these processes, I guess there's the processes that build things up, and then there's the ones that wear them down.
0: Right. And the things that wear things down are primarily on the surface of the earth, the wind slowly wearing away at the surface, rain slowly eating away at the surface, rivers flowing across the surface and cutting into them. So this is where the aeolian and the fluvial, the air and the water processes cut into the surface and change its shape.
1: And I guess where this is really interesting to us is that when you take this concept, you know, mostly developed to understand Earth's changes, and then you apply it to the other objects in the solar system, then the rules get different. I mean, we look at the moon. The moon has no air. The moon has no water. The morphology of the moon is driven in, in a very different way.
0: Right. So on the moon, I wouldn't say that something was mostly eroded due to water or air, but rather on the moon, we still have things wearing away at the surface. The astronauts' footprints aren't actually permanent. They're just permanent on the scales of, well, nations and civilizations. Over time, the slow pitting of the surface of the moon by micrometeorites will eat away at small features. Over time, you'll also get rather dramatic feature changes when the moon gets hit with asteroids, with comets, with basically rocks bigger than micrometeorites.
1: And so the the primary, so I guess what's both building up the landscape and tearing it back down again is purely just impacts.
0: Exactly. And this is the way it is today. But in the past, the moon did have volcanism. This is something that's kind of hard to think about. We we don't think of the moon as being geologically active in the same way that we see Iceland and Hawaii and Indonesia as ge- geographically active. But if you pour over the high-resolution images of the moon that are coming down from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and the other orbiting missions, uh, Kaigoya, for instance, Chandrayaan, these missions are revealing shield volcanoes, the same sorts of things that we see on the surface of our planet. They once were active on the moon. Lava tubes exist on the moon. The mare, that's, that's just dried lava or solidified, I guess, is a better word. So our moon, while currently very, very dead, in the past did have an active history.
1: And then let's compare that to some other world like maybe Enceladus.
0: Well, in Enceladus, here we have an an icy body that is as close to a perfect circle, perfect sphere as, as you can get. And this is because all those crater impacts that it's it's definitely had in the past. It's part of the solar system. It's been hit. They've all been filled in by ice. It, it's thought that cracks in the surface, uh, geyser holes in the surface, cause this little moon to basically spray out liquid that freezes on a regular basis. Some of this escapes and fills in Saturn's rings, but much of it falls back to the surface, just constantly refreshing that surface with fresh, shiny ice.
1: So, and then let's go for another one, right? I mean, <laughs> like what's happening on Venus? I mean, Venus has, has an atmosphere, right? So you can have air working, but no water.
0: And, and this is where you start to get differences between not all planets are made the same. Venus and Mars are, in many ways, very similar to the Earth. They have both had volcanoes. They both have had, at one point or another, atmospheres that caused liquid to fall from the skies, most likely water on Mars, and um, nastier things involving hydrochloric acid on (laughs) Venus. Don't want to be there. But these planets both have slightly different gravities, much less on Mars, slightly different on Venus, and neither of these two planets has the same active plate tectonics that we have here on the Earth. The surface of our planet is made of a series of plates that are colliding, that are going under and over one another, that are basically being reformed in different places as they're consumed in others. This constant moving of the plates causes the ring of fire with its earthquakes all around Alaska and Japan and Indonesia and South America... Those sorts of events don't occur on Mars or Venus. With Venus, it's a big enough planet that it hasn't cooled off. It's close enough to the sun that it's going to take it a little bit longer to cool off anyways. And the way it releases heat, instead of through the constant shifting of the plates and steady volcanism, is it appears to undergo periodic spastic eruptions. There's evidence that at one point in the past... Pretty much all of Venus was resurfaced in one wild go of volcanism whoa so that that's not some place you want to experience that sort of um active surface geology
1: so it's almost like the it held in the heat until it finally just gave and and the whole surface got was just volcanoes
0: right so so think of it as. The worst volcanic nightmare you 've ever had, basically now, so,
1: oh, so so then what 's wearing down the surface of Venus though
0: <laughs> so on Venus, you do have rain it 's more acidic it 's a greenhouse effect, so you do have all right, you of have these, sulfuric
1: acid rain yeah, right. right
0: all yeah. these nasty hydrocarbons are causing all sorts of nasty chemicals to literally rain from the sky, and those affect the surface, you also have cratering. And we don't actually know if there's ongoing volcanism on Venus. This is one of those constant questions that we just don't have an answer for. But hopefully, as we get better at building spacecraft that can withstand the high heat and the not particularly friendly chemical attributes of Venus, we'll be able to start putting a network of detectors down to sort out, is the surface still active today?
1: And then you've got Mars, as you said, as the comparison. It also doesn't have plate tectonics, but I'm, we see this, you know, the tallest volcanoes in the whole solar system are located on
0: Mars. And this is where gravity comes into play. And we we see similar extremes going to the moon. Here on the Earth, if you try and build a mountain too big, gravity pulls it down. Everest is about as big as you can Due to the properties of dirt, rock, soil, and gravity combined, Everest is about as big a mountain as you can get on the planet Earth. But on Mars, where there's a lot less gravity, it's possible to build things a whole lot higher. Thus, we have Olympus Mons. Now, here on Earth, at the same time, if you try and dig too big a hole, the sides will start slumping in. Well, on the Moon, things like the Atkin Basin, these are much deeper than any canyon, ravine, or pit found on the surface of our planet, and that's because on the moon you have much less gravity there as well. So when we look at Mars, we're seeing a surface that doesn't have the same gravitational effects. So we see valleys that are deeper, we see volcanoes that are higher, and all of this is what happens when you have, at least temporarily in your past, the same rain that we experience on the Earth. Thus, you had the cutting of the canyons and riverbeds found all over the planet. And you have volcanism that's able to build the largest volcanoes in the entire solar system.
1: Yeah, I know that if you look at some of the photographs of of the Martian surface, you see clearly what were ancient riverbeds. But I guess, you know, a lot of this stuff happened a long, long time ago. So it's not, it's definitely not recent.
0: Right. So here we're starting to look at events that occurred several hundred, not several hundred. Here we're starting to look at events that occurred several billion years ago. And we're still trying to figure out how did all the water get to Mars? What triggered these active periods of water on the surface? These, these are questions that are still being answered. But we're able to figure out when the water was by looking at the craters we can assume a pretty standard rate of rocks hitting planets over the course of the evolution of our solar system. There was a much higher rate of impacts in the much distant past. There, there was a period called the Age of Heavy Bombardment. And today, things still get hit, but not that often. And so when you look at something, you count up all the craters, and you look at your table of how quickly craters have built up over time. And you can figure out, you can work your way backwards mathematically to figure out, okay, this particular riverbed has on the surface of it this many craters per square mile. That tells you the age. This other one has a whole lot more craters. That means it's older. This other one has a lot fewer craters. That means it's younger. And what we find is there's a certain minimum age that we're finding these things at, which is a few billion years old.
1: And so I guess, you know, what does the study of geomorphology, what kinds, how would a scientist use that? You just explained one, one example, right, where you, you count craters and that tells you how old a structure is. What are some other ways that would, you would use geomorphology to try and answer some questions about the planet that you're, that you're studying?
0: I think one of the most interesting case studies of using geomorphology to understand something is the surface of the moon Titan. This little world, uh, happily orbiting Saturn, has an extremely thick atmosphere that's very rich in methane. And when we sent the Huygens probe descending through this atmosphere, the probe was able to take images of river deltas, of shorelines. And we were able to piece together that there's definitely liquid on that surface. Now, the thing is, Titan's really tiny. And the way we were seeing the deltas cut, the way we were seeing the shorelines cut, if it was water on the surface, well, first of all, water would have frozen. It's really cold on Titan. But even if Titan was warm enough, water's ability to cut through soil is such that you really wouldn't see the same shapes that we're seeing. And by looking at, well, I see how that set of deltas formed. I can use radar to figure out the alt- the elevation changes from one place to another. And you can use all of this to say, yeah, I'm pretty certain that it's methane, liquid methane, cutting up the surface of that planet. So by combining the properties of the rocks that make up Titan, the ability of liquid methane to eat through soils, the gravity at the surface of Titan. We were able to build theoretical models that matched what was actually observed. And that's just kind of neat to think about.
1: And it all, it tells you sort of what else to look for.
0: Right. And We can extend this across the solar system. So when we look at Io and we see its massive volcanism, that tells us something about the temperatures inside that moon. This is a moon of Jupiter. And so we're able to get a sense of what are the forces that are changing this surface. And when we start to compare surface to surface to surface, moving across the solar system, we can also start to figure out well, this part of the, sy- the solar system had this type of bombardment going on. This type of part of the solar system had this type of bombardment going on. Now, there aren't a lot of variations that we know of. One of the problems that we run into is you can't really say this crater was formed during exactly this point in history unless you go and you pick up a rock and you date it in a lab. And we've only been able to go and pick rocks up off the surf- surface of the moon. We're hoping to be able to go and pick rocks up off the surface of Mars. And this will allow us to tie the surfaces together.
1: But you've got a bit, right? You can count craters within craters.
0: Right. At the same time, it's it's just making sure we understand that what we're saying is true of Mercury and true mm-hmm. of Mars is at the exact same time true. Because you can kind of imagine that there's that possibility that you had during year A... I don't know, I'm going to make up numbers. During year A, you had 20 impacts a year at Mercury. And during year B, you had 20 impacts a year at Mars. And they both proceeded to have fewer and fewer in subsequent years in the exact same way where a certain number of years later, instead of having 20, they had 10. But that certain number of years later had a different starting point. And so we don't know if the rates at which impacts have slowed down has the exact same zero point, the exact same this many this year, this many this year, from planet to planet to planet. And this is why we want to go pick up rocks.
1: Right, because maybe certain... If the inner planets might have been hit for longer, harder, or the outer planets, or if you're near, near Jupiter, you got an extra beating later. So it just depends.
0: And comets melt as they come into the inner part of the solar system. So maybe you have that affecting things. There's there's a lot of things that we're still trying to figure out. And at a certain level, geomorphology is all about curiosity because, let's face it, volcanoes and impact craters are both just really cool. And so what we're really studying is the uh, explosive nature and the being hit really hard, nature of different planet surfaces, and that's just just a we want to kind of science.
1: But I think what you're what you're driving at though is it's a real uh, impetus for us to actually get some boots on the ground in you know on some of those other worlds. That if we can actually drop a probe down that that has the kind of laboratory on it that can date things. Then that's the really big piece of the puzzle that that right now we just really don't have, except for the moon. We really don't know how old the rocks are in a lot of these, you know, the places on Venus or on Mercury or on the surface of, of Mars, and 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 that is a huge gap in the knowledge.
0: Right, and and while I'm I'm kind of not going to say we should ever land people on the surface of Venus because I like most humans. Right. Um, robots. Getting- robots. Right, getting robots that are capable of then blasting at least part of their body back into space and sending something back to Earth. This is where the Mars sample return discussions come in. The the idea of landing, the current idea is to actually land a probe down that does its digging, does its laboratory science, and then land something side by side. And that side by side spacecraft is the one that has the parts necessary to return rocks back to Earth. It's a kind of scary mission profile because we don't really have the ability to land things side by side right now. We sort of have the ability to land things within very large landing ellipses. And if you want two robots to be able to interact with one another, we need to get those landing ellipses much, much smaller. But this is why we fund research and development as well as science.
1: And there's one whole class of, uh, erosion that happens here on earth that just doesn't happen that we know of anywhere else, which is biological impact, right? right? right. We have trees and plants and animals tearing the mining. landscape apart. Yeah. Humans it's, mining, right?
0: right? I, it, it's really amazing to fly over the continental United States, And I'm using this as a primary example because in flying over Europe, I haven't seen pit mining the same way I see in the United States. You'll be flying across the country, and if you've ever done Moon Zoo or any other surface morphology project for citizen science, be a Martian click workers. As you're looking through these images, you start seeing things like graben, which are straight lines across the surface that are created by two faults or a fault where parts of the this the land along the fault gets raised up and part of it collapses down into these long linear features. And you can see these as you're flying across the country. And you can see the dried up shorelines of ancient oceans and you can see mountains and volcanoes. But then you see the granite quarries, you see the pit mines, you see the mountains that have had their tops removed to get at coal. And you start to realize that human beings, especially when you start looking at some of the giant mines that exist in, I think it's South Africa that has the really big pit mine. As you start to look at these images, you realize human beings can have just as consequential, I'm not going to say damaging, but just as consequential impact on the landscape as a volcano can.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I guess one of the last things I want to talk about is, you know, we've really seen what what happens here in the solar system, but, but when you kind of apply the fundamentals of geomorphology, but then consider the universe as a whole, are, you know, does this help guide our search for extrasolar planets at all? Or does it help us recognize features of those planets? I know it's it's hard to see them, but...
0: Right now, we're not quite there yet. We're starting to get to the stage where we can spot hot spots in gaseous planets by looking in the infrared light. But in terms of being able to do more than say, well, this planet has both light and dark albedo features, both areas that are highly reflective and not highly reflective we're a long ways from being able to say, ah, volcanoes on another planet, unless we're doing spectroscopy of their atmosphere. But what's interesting is, as we start to look at all the crazy places that planets put themselves in this universe, there's planets out there that have to have unimagined features on their surface because of the weird tidal effects, the weird scrunching that they're affecting, that they're experiencing due to orbits that take them just way too close to their parent star. So if you can imagine taking something the size of Earth and putting it on an orbit much, much smaller than Mercury's that's even a little bit elliptical. That difference in the gravity it experiences at its closest point and at its furthest point is going to cause radical effects that make what's happening on Io look just like pretty afternoon sparklers mm. and and so we can imagine that there's things out there that we can't even imagine
1: yeah I mean look at look at worlds like Iapetus, right it has that huge strange wall on it right right, right? the the seam or the strange uh, on on Europa the what looked like sliding sheets of ice running across the surface. I mean, there's just, there's, you know, that's a combination of water with tidal lock heating and, you know, while Iapetus was possibly, you know, it got hit, struck really hard and then almost reformed. I mean, when you just consider that there is... Powerful volcanoes, tremendous tidal forces, impacts, and then super winds and things wearing things back down again. It's just a whole other class of, of possibilities. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be great right. if we could see some of those worlds. And we only get a glimpse of them. You know? You'll have these artists that will do these illustrations of, you know, of what it could look like on one of these worlds that's really tidally locked to its, to its star or you know, things like that. So, as we you know I guess the point is like as we discover these worlds, we'll try to make some guesses on what the geomorphology is going to be like, but unfortunately, actually getting the evidence is a lot harder
0: and and you're in fact bringing up things that we'd ignored earlier in the show, things like super winds super super tornadoes
1: mm-hmm.
0: what was a recently experienced in the South of America down in Alabama in particular. The 300-some-odd earthquakes in just a 48-hour period, these caused tiger stripes across the surface of the planet that were visible from satellite maps. These are some of the most amazing images because you can actually see just stripe after stripe after stripe all running roughly parallel to one another caused by these tornadoes. Now, you can imagine a planet that is in a situation where it has a different type of star, it's in a different location compared to its star, and has much greater temperature extremes, and thus has much more powerful tornadoes that don't just tear paths of destruction, but actually gouge paths of destruction across the surface of their planets
1: yeah I mean and you can imagine you know uh things in our our own ancient history, right like you've got there was a time when the whole earth was covered in ice, you know, and then you've right. got to imagine what's the geomorphology uh, there scraping away the the under surface you can imagine worlds that are that're all water right and have no no surface land at all but you then know? you
0: have geomorphology under the surface under the surface is, right exactly not under, under, the the, sur- under the water under but, the water
1: yeah. you know you could have like you have underwater currents that are pushing oh uh, it's, there's just so many possibilities and each one is both interesting in, in sort of what stories it tells you about the planet and also what is, you know, it can also tell you what you might expect to see in other worlds as well. I'm, it's really exciting.
0: And if you like to look out windows of airplanes learning geology can both enrich and destroy this experience for you. It's sort of like learning vectors and playing pool. Once you've learned vectors you can play pool much better but then you can't stop calculating vectors and once you start learning geomorphology as you fly across the continents looking out your window you're able to go ah, grabbin, ah, scarp ah, and identify <laughs> Tiger all the stripes, features yeah. Right, exactly. Oh,
1: hurricane damage, yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool, alright. Well thanks a
0: lot Pamela. It's been my pleasure, Fraser.
2: This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a non profit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for US taxpayers. You can support the show for free too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcasting software at astronomycast.com/podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.